This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller and Danny Nelson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello and welcome to Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network. I am Benjamin Schiller, features editor here at Coindesk. And joining me today is Danny Nelson. He's a co-host. Hello. And also Helene Braun. Uh, she is a reporter here at Coindesk. And we're going to be talking about the SBF trial, which just wrapped up last week with uh, the former founder of FTX being found guilty on seven counts of federal fraud and related charges. And that was a pretty big deal for the crypto industry and certainly here for Coindesk uh, as we broke the story originally. So Danny, what was it like to be there at the end of the trial there with the verdict? Yeah, I got to say it was unexpectedly emotional, right? So for five weeks, we heard all these co-conspirators, these insiders who pled guilty to various crimes testifying against Sam saying, he made me do this, he told me to do that. Caroline, Nishad and Gary all coming with their very powerful stories. And then at the end, Sam testified and then he was found guilty. And I feel bad for him. I know, weird thing to say. I don't feel like he is innocent or I don't think he's not guilty, rather. He's definitely guilty. He's guilty as hell. But watching him in the courtroom, watching his parents there, you just I just felt like this sense of, wow, the, the, I felt the gravity of the moment. And I don't know, we should lock him up, but we shouldn't give him 115 years. Uh, this is a hot take, I know. Maybe we can get into the rights and wrongs of you know how long he's going to get. Uh, Helena, what about you? How did you feel when you uh, saw the verdict being uh, read out? Yeah, I did not feel bad for him at all, especially after we heard all the closing statements. Um, We heard two different closing statements from Assistant U.S. Attorney Danielle Sazoon, and they were very compelling and very convincing. And I felt like there was this moment in her closing argument where I looked at Sam and it just felt like he finally realized that this was it for him. There was no going back. His defense was just not good enough. And I think the jurors knew too. And at that point, I was just like, I hope he gets 150 years or 200 years. I don't feel bad for this guy. All the evidence that we've heard was just crazy to me. So no, I, I totally disagree with Danny. Um, I think he deserves to be in prison for the entirety of his his life. Right. So, so you mentioned the defense there. I mean, there was a seemed to be a consensus amongst you know lawyers that we spoke to about the trial and the defense that he didn't get a very good service on that score. I mean, how much of a difference do you think that actually made? I mean, it seems like a, a structural set of circumstances where he would get a guilty verdict anyway, and most people expected him to go to jail. But do you think if he had a better defense, he could have gotten a better sentence or a better verdict? Yeah, I think it's interesting because in the beginning of the trial, it sort of felt like the defense wasn't trying very hard. And I think it must be so funny if you're Mark Cohen, the defense attorney that Sam was represented by, to read all these articles about you and how bad of a lawyer you are and how bad of the defense strategy you have from all these you know, journalists that have nothing to do with the law and aren't attorneys themselves. And they're just judging your work, basically. But I think in his closing statements, I could see that he was trying really hard and that I think he was he had hope for his defense. I don't know. He's supposed to be good. I don't know. I was wondering that, too. If, is he supposed to be a really good lawyer or is he just 
the guy that all the bad guys go to because he's the only one is willing to defend them. From what I've heard, I think Mark Cohen is a fine lawyer, but that's the name of the game when you're a defense attorney. Your clients, especially the uh, more outspoken ones like Sam Bankman-Fried, you're not going to win all your cases. And if you have a really bad deck, well, that's the deck you have to play with. And he went to trial with this guy who had so much evidence against him. I think it was very insurmountable. So sure, maybe he wasn't as quick on his feet with some of the uh, strategic and tactical things in the courtroom, like objections and phrasing of questions and things like that. But if you have all these people testifying against your client, and then when your client takes a stand, you can't get him to sound the way that an innocent person would sound. And also, you have to remember, before the trial even began, the defense lost a lot of attempts to shape how the trial would go. The judge wouldn't allow the defense to bring in all of Sam's philosophical arguments. Uh, They wouldn't allow him to bring defensive counsel arguments. He went to trial with a losing hand, and it's not completely his fault that the trial ended up going against his client. Right. I mean, I have to say, I agree with you, Danny, about feeling a little bit sorry for SBF. I mean, you know, both things can be true. On the one hand, you can say this guy was a fraud. He was a criminal. He took a lot of people's money and he spent it lavishly and irresponsibly. On the other hand, uh, you know, he is a human being, you know, to get this huge sentence. I mean, he could go away for 115 years at at maximum. Uh, It seems like a rather excessive amount of time. And there is an argument out there that he is very much the fall guy for the the industry and the guy who's kind of taking the rap for a lot of cultural problems in the industry and a kind of lax general corporate governance culture out there. I mean, there were VC funds that put millions of dollars, billions of dollars into FTX uh, without doing any due diligence. And that's not a criminal act, but it was a act of cultural indifference or negligence that you could say contributed to this enormous folly. So, um, you know, I think there's a a reasonable argument to say that he is taking the route for the entire industry when uh, maybe he doesn't quite deserve that kind of level of status here. What do you think about that, Danny? I don't know. I think it's like a special kind of stupid to set up a company in the way he did. And sure, there's a lot of follies that crypto in general has committed, but just the arrangement between Alameda and FTX, and that's this whole case, right? That Alameda spent all this money from XTS customers. That is so unique, right? It that doesn't even have to do with crypto. The way that this fraud was committed was mostly because people were wiring their money into Alameda Research to get it into FTX. So There was also the allow negative code and the let's borrow $65 billion code that was more crypto native. But I don't know. And, you know, look at me. I'm contradicting myself again, right? Because earlier in the episode, I'm saying, well, I feel bad for Sam. And here I'm saying, well, he's guilty as hell. I don't know. I think there's room for both statements because it's very hard to watch someone's parents in the room when a guilty verdict is handed out. Like they're, they're, they're older, right? He's going to be locked up probably for the rest of their lives. I don't know. I just, I, I can't get over that scene in the courtroom. I did feel guilty. I'm sorry. I did feel bad oh, for him. Did you steal the money? <laughs> I wish. I did feel bad for him up until his testimony. Because up until that point, all these people that he used to be friends with that were all part of the scheme too. Like he wasn't just the only one that committed this fraud. All these other people, Caroline, Nashad, Gary, they were all part of this. And they all were put up on the stand as the good guys, so to say, just because 
they cooperated with the government and they told their side of the story. So, but then his testimony just showed that he is not remorseful at all. He still is trying to lie to people. He's still trying to talk himself out of this. And at that point, I was just like, this is, you know, it's too late for this. You're already in this trial. You understand it's, it's time to look back and be a little bit remorseful and stop thinking that you're smarter than everybody else. Hmm. I mean, do you think it would have made a difference if he was remorseful? Well, if he was remorseful, he would have been convicted even faster. Yeah, it's tough because he can't really be remorseful because, in his opinion, he's not guilty, right? So what's he going to say to the jury? He could say something like, I'm sorry got, the people got hurt and uh, I made mistakes and something like that. Well, he did you know? say that. That was the very first thing he said, basically. And then after that, it was every, everything was basically, I don't remember. He just said it to say it because he had to. Helene, among the the witnesses that flipped on Sam, who's the biggest villain? Like you sat through that whole thing too. Who do you walk away feeling the least bad for? And who do you feel the most bad for? I feel like there are easy answers here. I feel the least bad for Caroline just because... Ooh, okay. Literally just because of that tape that we heard from that meeting in November where she told her employees that it was kind of fun to, you know steal money. She obviously didn't explicitly say it like that, but she she said it was fun. She sounded a little crazy in that recording. So after her testimony, after hearing that recording, I thought, wow, she's she's definitely not the innocent little girl that everybody says she is. She's she certainly knew what she was doing and she certainly, you know, she's certainly guilty as well. So I feel the least bad for her. The person that I felt really, really bad for was Nishat. Okay. But I also don't know if that's just because he's very soft-spoken. He has a very low voice. He seems like a very sweet guy. So it could just be a front that he put on for his testimony. I I have the opposite answers, actually. Like, a complete opposite. I feel like Caroline, from reading the, the Michael Lewis book, which is sympathetic to Sam, but also some of the things that were said about Caroline were repeated by the government in their narrative. Caroline just comes off to me as someone who was completely, uh, I guess the word I would use is submissive in every aspect of this business and personal relationship. And I don't feel bad for her at all, but I feel the least bad for her, even though she did big fraud. I think that, that Nishad, though, is next level evil. He presents himself, like you say, as this guy who is soft-spoken and but the, oh, by the way, after he learned that the companies were stealing money from customers, he took out $3 million to personally buy a house. This wasn't like in furtherance of the scheme to keep it all afloat. This was so he could have a house. It's so it, it, like personal enrichment. So I think it's all just a front. And Gary, I don't know how to read him. I think he just doesn't talk much. And he took the deal as soon as his lawyer said, we should, uh, we should make moves here. Do we know what the deals are with those uh, collaborators who turned on uh, SPF? I mean, will they be getting any jail time? We don't know that aspect of it. I would imagine that Gary will get the best deal because he he offered himself up to the government before the government was even investigating. Caroline, she didn't speak until they raided her house. So uh, you get negative points for that. And I don't know about Nashad, but I would expect Gary to get the best deal. Gary said he hopes that he doesn't get any jail time, though. And I think I think that could actually be the case. Uh, yeah. Because we see in a lot of these white collar cases that those people or the witnesses that cooperate with the government actually get zero jail time. So I think that's a possibility, which would be crazy to me. 
Yeah, they'll probably get years of probation. So if they would violate the deal, then they would go right to jail. But I think Caroline might get some time. I don't know about Nishad. And I would expect Gary to get no jail time. Could we even see them back in the crypto industry? I highly doubt that that's, that seems exceptionally unlikely. I think they want nothing to do with this. In fact, in other cases, the government, like for securities fraud, so some of them have, some of them pled guilty to securities fraud. When you plead guilty to securities fraud, the government often makes you say, I will never work in, in the securities industry again. Right. That probably means they shouldn't work in any of crypto because most cryptos are securities. Bitcoin's not a security. Well, Bitcoin is not a security too, uh, and neither is Ether, but a lot of the other ones probably are. Uh, so I, if I were them, I would steer clear. I don't know. I think they've had their fair share of the crypto industry, and I don't think anybody needs to see them back in the industry. I think Adam Yudidia, who was one of the first witnesses, who was a senior software engineer at FTX, I think, or Alameda, he is a high school teacher now. Yeah, he's a math teacher. He seemed a little traumatized by this whole experience. <laughs> well, maybe in a few years' time, we can do a sort of where are they now uh, article. So, uh, Helena, just final thoughts from you. Uh, what's your sort of takeaway feeling from the end of the trial? Relief? Exhaustion? A little bit of both. In the beginning, before going into this trial, I was very certain that he was going to be found guilty. And then during the trial, I sort of had hope that he would put up a really good defense. I was kind of just excited to see the trial, wanted to see a really good show because I knew that he had hired these really good lawyers like Mark Cohen and Christian Everdale. Um, that didn't happen. So after a few weeks, I was excited for the end and I was excited to see a verdict come in. Not shocked at all after, like I said, the closing statements. So very glad this is over because it did kind of get a little ridiculous and repetitive towards the end. Danny, is it a bit of a come down to get back to normal crypto journalism after the adrenaline rush of the courtroom? Man, I don't want to go back to normal crypto journalism. The trial was so much fun. It was, I was ready for it to be over, but I, it's so much. It's like a, a different plane of existence. Hmm. It felt that way. So I'm looking forward to the next criminal trial, which was going to be Avi Eisenberg's in December, but it got punted to April. So I just have to sit around and wait. Well, there's speculation now that CZ of Binance is the next major name on the kind of prosecutorial docket. So uh, we'll see if that happens and watch the space for continuing coverage. Thank you very much, Elaine Braun, for everything you do for Coinesk and for appearing on this podcast with us. And Danny, likewise. Well, I think that I'm ready to move on from SBF, Ben. This has been my life for five weeks. And uh, my back hurts, and I'm tired, and I'm ready to get back to the show. So tell me, what have I missed in the last five weeks? What has gone on in crypto? Well, that's a good question, Danny. Thanks for asking that. So I think it's interesting how there's kind of this split-screen reality, because on the one hand, uh, the story of crypto has been a lot about this trial, a lot about what happened with SBF and why it happened, and all the shenanigans that went on with, uh, with FTX. And uh, I would like to draw listeners' attention to an article that Dan Kuhn wrote today for something they were calling Trading Week, which is about the worst trades that Alameda and FTX made. It's quite kind of eye-opening about oh, no. some incredibly stupid decisions they, they made. And uh, it's really, as he says in the article, astounding that we ever thought that Sam Bankman-Fried was a smart guy because clearly under the hood he wasn't. Um, 
But at the same time, what I mean by a split screen is that, you know, while this trial's been going on, there's this general consensus that the crypto market is picking up, that the regulators are offering a little more clarity than they were, and that there are bright spots, particularly in the way in which TradFi or traditional finance is viewing crypto. And that's particularly around promise of Bitcoin ETFs, uh, spot Bitcoin ETFs. So at the same time, there are you know shifts in the market towards what's called tokenization, which is the idea of tokenizing existing financial assets like US treasuries or actual physical assets like uh, office buildings and, and other things. So uh, that's seen as a great source of interest and the potential basis for a new bull run going forward. And the question really is, like, what does that bull run look like? And, and most people th- seem to think that it's going to be a more mainstream play, that it's going to be about what these mainstream institutions are interested in trading in rather than the kind of crypto bros or the crypto native folks, which obviously had a different set of interests. So uh, that's what we've really been exploring in Trading Week, which is sponsored by uh, CME, which is obviously a mainstream financial institution itself. Now, Ben, I mean, we've been in the winter since, what is it? When, when did Terra blow up? I think that, that that's definitively the start of the downfall of everything. That April of 2022, right? About around then? So the first leg was Terra, and then Three Arrows, and then Celsius, right? Because Celsius blew up during the conference. I wonder, for next year's consensus, because that's coming up, which crypto company is most likely to implode at the end of this consensus? Stay tuned for that, dear listener. But until then, I'm wondering, like, how do we define the bear and the bull, right? So in the real economy, yes, the real economy, there are definitions for what is and isn't a recession. How do we define that in crypto? Is it just going off vibes? Well, that's an interesting question I wrote about this last week. Uh, you know, a recession is defined as two down quarters of GDP or, or you know, gross domestic output. And apparently there is no official definition of what a crypto winter is or the opposite of winter. Um, but I think if you've been in crypto long enough, you kind of know it and smell it and can feel it. And uh, people kind of know, um, I mean, but there is no official technical definition. But, uh, you know, when prices are rising, when players are coming back into the market, when there is a renewal of VC funding, which is sort of happening now, that's when people call the end of a crypto winter. Well, I guess everything is relative, right? Because just these past few weeks, we've seen huge layoffs at OpenSea. We've seen this week a pretty big layoffs at Ava Labs, which is behind the Avalanche blockchain. At Coindesk, we're scrambling to divvy up office furniture and apparently dishwashers. If you could tell us a bit about this dishwasher ironing, Ben. So the bear is still being felt, even if we're onto the bull. Or I I don't think we're onto the bull. Maybe we're into the in-between. Right. Well, you can argue it different ways, right? I mean, you could say that, you know, troubles at uh, OpenSea are more to do with the NFT market and particularly the rise of OpenSea's main competitor, which is Blur, and maybe kind of hubris in, in that kind of operation where they invested very heavily in, in staff during the, the bull run in, in NFTs. And uh, that's sort of taken a while to play out. And for those people, very unfortunately, to, to lose their jobs. So that's not necessarily a kind of leading indicator of what the market as a whole looks like. I think it's more particular to OpenSea and the NFT market and kind of a huge pent up amount of capital out there that's still kind of needed to be spent from the last bull run. And that's actually propped up a number of companies to seem more solvent than than they are. Now, we talk about fluff and nonsense. When I started at Coindesk in 2019, goodness me, 
my intro to, to crypto news. Back then at Coindesk, I was writing about tokenization. I was writing about an effort to take real estate and gold bars and I don't know anything else and put it on the blockchain and make it tokenized and then trade it. And that didn't work. Or maybe it worked, but no one talked about it. Fast forward four years, and we're talking about real world assets and tokenization again. I'm just fascinated by this trend of maybe I should get back out my double-breasted suit jackets. What's, what's going on here? It's a bit problematic to talk about real-world assets as a particular category because there are actually lots of different industries that are looking to tokenize things. And you know, kind of the, the, the spearhead of that at the moment is U.S. Treasuries, which are now being traded with alacrity. And that's um, to do not only with the new capabilities that is enabled by tokenization, but also a function of the fact that you know people can make money from trading in, in U.S. debt at the moment because interest rates are quite favorable. So it's kind of an easier way to get in on something that's a good trade anyway. Whereas you also have categories like real estate. So the idea of kind of fractionalizing a building and then, and then putting it on blockchain to trade it is, is part of that trend, but quite different. So I think we'll have to see whether the enthusiasm for things like tokenized treasuries translates into these more exotic categories that, uh, as you say, or indicate are, are, are maybe a harder sell for, for investors. But there's definitely a lot of interest in there. And if Wall Street says it's going to be a thing, then generally it is a thing. And I think if you look at the NFT bubble or boom last time, that largely happened because enough people thought it was a boom. Uh, and I think there's a sense now that a lot of people think that tokenization will be a boom in the next bull run. So um, it kind of has a self-fulfilling prophecy dimension to it, I, I would say. So Ben, uh, what else should I be looking out for? What else should we be looking out for in trading week? What are some of the greatest hits? Well, we have a lot of pieces. Uh, you know, I mentioned real-world assets and tokenization. We have a, a few pieces on that. We have some interviews with crypto traders looking at how they're uh, looking to get an edge. And Jeff Wilson wrote kind of uh, seven successful strategies of crypto traders, which is definitely worth looking at. We've got some uh, pieces looking at the opportunity from uh, Bitcoin ETFs, which some people think could be up to a trillion new dollars going into Bitcoin. That's kind of modeled on the success of gold ETFs, which came out in the early 2000s and, you know, sprang into a huge opportunity. There's a lot in this package from a kind of human interest side of crypto trading to analysis and opinion from, as I say, leading players in the market. You've grilled me for a few minutes here. I want to put this back on you. Uh, what are you excited about in the next few months, if anything? Well, in the immediate term, I'm excited to go to sleep because I did not get much of that during the trial. And to be honest, not to keep it on trial topics, but I'm a very, I, I've, got, I've got the bug now. I'm excited for more going forward. I'm looking forward to Celsius and to Mango Markets and to all these other uh, opportunities that I'll have to go to the courthouse because the intersection of crypto and the law, it's only going to get more interesting. With Sam, it was kind of a plain vanilla fraud. What happens when perpetual swaps enter the courtroom? Hmm. I don't know. We'll find out. Yeah, that's a great point, actually, because, I mean, uh, you know, for, for all the interest around the SBF trial, uh, there weren't actually a lot of kind of live crypto issues that were actually decided no. in that trial. And actually, the, the verdict was fairly predictable. I mean, very predictable, perhaps. And, uh, you know, it's not like any of the, the big kind of outstanding questions of crypto were really answered in the, in the proceedings. So there's a lot of uh, that's still to come. Yeah. When we get to Tornado Cash and when we get to Mango Markets even, we're going to have to grapple with these notions of is code actually law, 
right? right? So when we get to smart contracts law versus actual contract law, who knows what will happen? So stay tuned. Yeah, that's interesting. Another area that you might mention, Danny, is uh, the whole issue of DAOs, uh, which sort of seems eminently uh, litigatable. DAOs are down only. Yeah. Down only. Down only. Um, down with all of them. I hate them. I love to hate them. Please keep burning, keep boiling over, keep blowing up. It's endlessly fun. So I'm looking forward to some more explosions. On that uh, apocalyptic note, thank you very much, Danny, for your irrepressible presence and get some sleep. And we'll see you all next week. Or you won't see us, but you'll listen to us, hopefully. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and all other good platforms like that. And thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production. Executive produced by Jared Schwartz and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.